Radio. Statements and opinions of this podcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and a leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the mission of the U.S. Department of the Treasury's Office of Fiscal Service? How did it use agile principles in its pandemic response? And how is Treasury's Office of Fiscal Service using innovative approaches to meet its critical mission? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Dave Liebrich, Fiscal Assistant Secretary at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. Dave, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. It's really nice to see you again. So, Dave, before we delve into specific initiatives, would you provide us with an overview of the history and mission of the U.S. Department of the Treasury's Office of Fiscal Service? Sure. So um, we often pride ourselves in the fact that maybe we're not a household name because uh, what we do is really kind of really much of the back office function within government. Now, we call it mission support, but it's kind of the core financial management infrastructure for the federal government. And that's the Bureau of the Fiscal Service, which is the operational arm. As Fiscal Assistant Secretary, my job is to set policy as well as to oversee the Bureau of the Fiscal Service. And we have roughly around 40, 45 employees in in our office. The Bureau of the Fiscal Service has around 3,500. And it does very important work for the government, things like helping make 90% of the payments, things like the Social Security payments, collecting the revenues and receipts that come into the government. So if you make a payment to the IRS or you make a payment to renew your passport, we're the ones who are collecting that money on behalf of the federal government. Um, We're also then responsible for the reporting uh, on financial activity. So we do something called the Annual Financial Report of the United States Government. It's a compilation of all the financial activity. And we also do, very importantly, the financing of the government. So all the auctions, the Treasury auctions that are done, are things are very important work that we do in order to make sure that we can finance the ongoing operations of the government. In my immediate office, in the Office of Fiscal Assistantary, we also perform the function of cash management. Federal governments are very large, the largest entity in the, in the world, um, and, and um, we have a cash flow of well over $100 billion a year. So our job is to make sure that we have enough money on hand every day to meet the obligations of the federal government. That's wonderful. So it kind of dovetails into how is your office organized? Is it there are two different um, areas, I believe, under your specific office? Yeah. And and uh, right now we have two deputies in, in my office, one who is responsible for kind of the policy and the cash management. And the other one's for transparency and reporting. Uh, and we also have we wrap innovation in that as well, which I'm interested. I hope we can get a chance yes, to absolutely. get to in, in a little bit. And the Data Act, which was passed in 2014, was a really large, important initiative government-wide to improve transparency, the, the quality and the availability of data, to take a better look at how the government actually functions. Um, the financial report that I mentioned earlier, it's kind of a static document. I mean, it's something that it's kind of an annual report. It's very important in a sense to shows that the government has controls and that it's really sort of about stewardship and making sure that there's a record of government activity. When we got into the Data Act, it was more about making the data more accessible to the average person and to make it more usable on a daily basis. And that's something that we felt has been very important. Um, As it relates to the other arm of our our office and, and the policy and the cash management, we also interestingly have in our office something called the Restore uh, office, the Restore Act office. And that was after the Deep Horizon oil spill. There was money set aside that was uh, for the Gulf states to, to do economic development. 
you would not normally think that the Office yeah. of the Fiscal Assistance Secretary would perform that function, but it's been really interesting to see about how we can work with the states to actually um, promote economic activity and to remediate some of the the, uh, the harm that was done from the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Uh, and so what that does for someone like me is it gives us a chance to have a deeper insights into kind of what grant activity is across the government, how you administer grants and the impact of grants. So much of what we do in fiscal is that we're doing something kind of at a wholesale level, so we don't oftentimes get a chance to see the impact of the activity. When you have something like the uh, Restore program, you can actually visit um, activity that's occurring, that the grants are being made, and and seeing exactly how the impact that those that, that those monies are having on communities, and that's really kind of neat. Yeah, really. So, just one question: as a side, does that program sunset? Anytime soon, or is it is it in perpetuity? It's not in perpetuity. There's, there's a finite set of money that okay. will go into the program, and then once the grants are all administered, then the program will 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 sunset. Although, there, as is the case always with government, there's compliance on the back end yes. to make sure the money was were were used appropriately. Uh, so for for the whole fraud, waste, and abuse kind of thing, exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. So you know, you you alluded to it um, eloquently about what you do in your role, but I was wondering, what's the day in the life? of the fiscal assistant secretary. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's an interesting question. It's, very, it's varied. And I think in 2020, the, my life changed significantly right. given, uh, and, and that's, that's kind of been a pattern over time, which is our office, because of our important role that we have in getting money out and making sure that, um, we, that we're responsible, whether it be financing the government or whether it making payments. Um, so in, in 2020, my job changed significantly. We were really hard, heavily focused on economic impact payments and getting those payments out. Um, I think it's not well appreciated, and our memories oftentimes are short, but um, in April of, of 2020, worldwide economies contracted by 20%. Unemployment rolls were getting sort of weekly claims at around 300,000. In April of 2020, that number went over 6.6 million. And so what you really had at that moment was a significant contraction. And without this really strong federal response, and I think what one have seen is people were estimating unemployment rates at 30%. I think it would have been uh, really horrific for many, many people. The role of the federal government in that is pretty remarkable in terms of how quickly we were able to get money in people's hands um, and people forget about things like the PPP program and the airline support program and the state and local funds that were sent out during that time to assist communities and the unemployment insurance benefits that were sent out during that time, which were sent out in record time. And it resulted in, in averting a real significant catastrophe. We oftentimes don't think about the really important role the federal government plays in ensuring the stability of the, of the country. And uh, while there are oftentimes is questions about trust in government, mm-hmm. uh, we don't oftentimes enough times pause and say, hey, look, the federal government really did something quite remarkable here for individuals and for society and for the, for the government as a whole in that, in that very short window. So um, in that particular time, my responsibility shifted significantly and was focusing really hard on recovery activity. Uh, but in the daily activities, I'm, I, I, I just before coming here today, I, I, we, were, we go through a financing decision about what is going to be the financing needs of the government uh, and what are the securities that we're going to issue to meet those needs. Um, so we're, then we're looking at our cash balance. What's our cash balance at the, at the moment? What are outlays expected to be and what our receipts are expected to be? And so we're very much always you know, paying attention to that. We're also responding on a regular basis to um, you know, what is the president's management agenda and, and we're looking hard at kind of what we think a vision for financial management will be. 
we I think take our role in fiscal very much as trying to be a leader in in, in advancing federal financial management. So I do things. I come out and have conversations like <laughs> this about what we do and and trying to advance some of those things. So Dave, when you think about your portfolio and your leadership role. In terms of the ups and downs, whether there's the a pandemic or the Recovery Act of 2009 kind of thing, where you're having to go out of the box, or you're just doing the daily needs of the of the country, what are some of the challenges you face, management or otherwise? Say top three, yeah. you can think of them. I mean, I'm going to maybe start from a positive aspect of this, which is one of the things that happened in 2020 was our ability to be very agile. And so, um, you know, the, the need in government to be responsive and what I think we learned in that particular case, and, and, and NAPA has, a, has put together an agile government, uh, Center for Agile Government, in which they've been really advancing best practices in this. And one of the couple of things you really learn in that process is um, that when something happens quickly, you tend to have form small teams, cross-cutting teams, and you have to be agile. You no longer have roles and responsibilities that you... Now, in my business where we do things that have to be done repeatedly, effectively, you do have repeatable processes and procedures. But when that's disrupted, um, you have to have the ability in an organization to really break down silos. You have to be able to look at data. You have to be able to put together cross-cutting teams so that people can move quickly and be responsive to the activity at hand. And I think one of the things I'm really proud of, in, at least in the Bureau of the Fiscal Services, is how agile we were in 2020. Um, even in, in terms of looking at innovation, how do you look at something differently? How do you look at data to help you make decisions? Um, how do you look across the organization to actually move rapidly? How do you look at things differently than you would have otherwise? And then importantly, how do you make sure you look at the end user? Um, and really, you know, in Agile, that's one of the really principles is that you're, you are looking at the end user experience, and that's where you start. You're also comfortable with taking more risks. And we're not comfortable with risks in the in our in my world, um, or generally kind of in the federal government, in part because we can't make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And so we have a very low risk tolerance, and so we think about risk in a in a very sort of a measured way. But you have when you have something like you, we had in 2020, you you need to sort of take risks, and you need to make sure that you can make adjustments quickly, um, and that means you look at innovation. I think you know in that regard. If you have a strong learning organization, um, when you're faced with a challenge, um, you have the ability to sort of think differently about something. You, you know, you're constantly looking at what's going on in the environment around me. What are some of the best practices that we might be able to apply here? What kind of some of the things that we can try? And I think we did very well in, the, in that 2020 time frame of really making that pivot and that adjustment and being more agile. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenges that I face at times is how do you have that continued sense of urgency and how do you have a, a sense of, um, look, maybe we can take more risks than we were previously um, comfortable with? Yeah, and I, I noticed in my conversation with other leaders, government leaders, the idea of turning you know, the crisis of the day into an opportunity to, to, as you said, pivot or transform, it's surprising what effects you get from whether it's your staff, whether it's the, the cross-agency collaboration. So I was wondering, what has surprised you most in your current role? Yeah, I think... Um, one of the biggest pieces of satisfaction I have in my job is when I see us um, having a challenge and my and I'm pleasantly surprised at how well we do. So I'll give you an example on the economic impact payments. Um, we had to get payments out very quickly. And I, ideally, you want to make those payments electronically for a number of reasons, which we can get into a little bit. But we also then had, had a number that we were making by check. 
Um, and we had staff that were so committed to the cause that they were coming in on Saturdays and Sundays and saying, hey, look, we're going to we're going to get this done. We know how important this is to the American people. Um, we know we need to get these payments out quickly. And we got the payments out in a time. I think a really interesting statistic from my perspective, when I did this in uh, earlier in my career, it took us 11 weeks to get the first payment out in, in 2011. We had completed almost all payments by eight weeks in EIP-1. Um, in other words, we had virtually done program completion in eight weeks when it took us 11 weeks to get the first payment out in 2011. And it's because we had sort of moved forward on a number of innovative efforts and we had done some things differently than we would have otherwise, and we had much less reliance on check than we did on EFT this time. We additionally did a number of things, which, you know, I was really proud of, of taking a look at of using existing government data um, that we had when we make things like Social Security payments and using that data to make sure that we weren't making a check payment to those people. Instead, we converted that from a check to an electronic payment by looking at existing government data. Now, why is that important? Well, it means that people got the money faster. Um, secondly, it means, uh, and interesting, that about 5 or 6% of the checks that we issue get returned. And so they don't clear. Now, on an electronic payment, that's less than 1%. So reliability and end-user experience is much improved by electronic payment. And we, we, we save close to 30 to $40 million by doing just that, of taking those, those payments that would have otherwise gone out by check and, and converted those to electronic. And, you know, there, there again is an instance of the end-user was better served, the taxpayer was better served. And we use innovation and uh, different ways of thinking about things than we might have otherwise. I guess I shouldn't be surprised on one <laughs> level, but it's always that pleasant surprise of when uh, we, we in fiscal, but I think elsewhere in government, are faced with a really tough challenge and people come together and say, hey, how do we, how do we resolve this thing and, and achieve really excellent results? And to do that, Dave, you really need good leadership. And I'm wondering if you could give us a sense of how you lead. What are some of the leadership principles you kind of subscribe to? And what are the characteristics, given your career, yeah. that you believe uh, make, a, make a good leader? Yeah. So I think any leader uh, in any level of the organization um, really needs to always thinking about three things. They need to be thinking about the strategic direction, the long-term direction of where they're headed. Um, they need to think about operational excellence, and then they think they need about the people that actually deliver, that help deliver on those on that on that vision and that mission. And you have to think very uh, in a very sort of disciplined way about all three of those lanes. Um, and so you you need to think about where do you want to be in five to ten years, and what are the types of things that you want to be advancing. When I go out and speak to people about, you know, working, you know, what, what's going to be successful to be long-term in your government, one of the things I say, Liz, there's a saying that's sort of, you know, vision without execution is hallucination. Um, you know, that is you can have all the great ideas in the world, but unless you're able to execute on those ideas, then it's, they're just ideas. Um, and so it's great to have the, you know, you, and someone in, in my position needs to think very much strategically about where we're headed, but you also have to have the operational ability and capabilities to actually deliver against a vision. And the only way you do that is if you have good, strong people. So you have to be thinking, again, in those three lanes about how am I attracting the right team? How am I developing the right culture? Um, how am I getting the right skills in place? How am I making sure that I'm training people and giving them the opportunities to grow and to have that learning quality that I mentioned? You know, always thinking about how do I do my job better and how can I be more innovative and forward thinking in my position? I think that the further you get up in the organization, the more time you spend on the strategic mm -hmm. and the less you're going to be spending on the operation. But you always have to be spending time on that third bucket on the people side. You know, if you have good people, it makes a leader's position a lot easier. 
um, than having to, you know, you, you want to have someone who can steer and you want to have people who can row. And the more people you have are good rowers and steerers, the more effective you're going to be. What are the strategic priorities for Treasury's Office of Fiscal Service? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dave Liebrich, Fiscal Assistant Secretary at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. So, Dave, switching gears a bit, I was wondering if you could outline for me and for the audience your vision of your office and and maybe highlight some strategic priorities over the next couple of years. Yeah. So um, we had done something about three or four years ago. We did a 10-year vision for future of federal financial management, and we came down to three principles. We said that um, that uh, the taxpayers expect us to be good stewards of financial resources. They expect that when they get data from the financial management community, it's accurate, and they expect a modern, seamless, secure um, experience with the government. And um, so we have spent a lot of time thinking about how to make sure that we can advance those three objectives and specifically thinking about the customer experience aspect of being really important. Now, I mentioned that as at a key element on Agile, and I mentioned on the, and that's a key element when we were doing economic impact payments. Um, we're not great at it in government yet. I mean, quite frankly, we have a ways to go. And I oftentimes, you know, talk about my experience at the DMV in which, you know, I went to go get my real ID and uh, I was being a good citizen and doing that. And I went on an 85 degree day and I was waiting in line outside on a Friday before a holiday and thought I you know, took a day off to do that. And, and uh, my experience lasted about two and a half hours. My experience once I got to the counter was exceptional. In other words, the person who serviced me and helped me did a wonderful job. And we sometimes in government can focus on one aspect of customer service, but you really need to be thinking about the entire experience. Um, and also, oftentimes, you have to be careful. My guess is, is that they had measured me only spending about 30 minutes there because they only measured by the time I took my ticket. And so uh, you've got to be careful about how you're measuring things and incentives you have when you're measuring. And the reason I mention that is, is that it was about 85 degrees outside, and I was looking inside, and the chairs were empty where people could sit. And I thought, why are those chairs empty? Well, because they weren't letting you in until you took your ticket. Uh, and so every time we do a development project now, we have a number of them underway, we have customer experience as, as one of the major work streams in the project. And the difficulty we oftentimes have in government, though, is that we will build something and we'll say we're done. 
really good customer experience is about continuous improvement, that you're constantly going back and looking at what is that user experience and how are they using your application or your service? How can you make adjustments in that service to actually meet the needs of the end user? And those end user uh, needs oftentimes change. I sometimes laugh and say, you know, look, when I started to look at technology, I thought I had to change to meet the technology. Well, today, my expectation is that technology will change to meet my needs, right? So it's a very different you know, relationship that we have with technology. We in government haven't necessarily made that leap yet of that, that conversion about how do we look at um, you know, that, that what we expect. So we do things like go out and, and, and compile functional requirements. We do things like say, we know what the end user wants because we know best. We don't really talk to the end user enough. And so we've really been working hard on that third, that modern, seamless, secure experience of trying to, to improve our services so that they do better meet the needs of the end user. As it relates to accuracy, the second bucket was uh, accuracy of data. Um, I mentioned earlier about the role we had in the Data Act and really doing and doing a better job. We have a wonderful site, which I encourage everyone to take a look at, called um, Your Guide to America's Finances, which really breaks down how government spends its money how it receives its money, and then the resulting deficit, and then the resulting debt, because the, the, the debt is a, is, a, is a totality of all the deficits. It does really break it down by saying, I want to know what's, how much we paid in Social Security. I want to know how much was collected in Social Security taxes. And it's a really very user-friendly site that one can actually see that. It's very educational about how government functions. So we, we're constantly thinking about those three things in terms of advancing and, and making sure that we're strategically positioning ourselves to do a number of things. And, and I can, we can talk a little bit more about what that means in payments and collections but, uh, and in financing. But it really, at, at the heart of much that is, is that balance that you have between you know, ongoing operational resilient, solid operations, and, and then continuous improvement. I was wondering, as you were developing the strategy, your 10-year focus, you, you mentioned customer experience, uh, and that really is tied to the PMA. I mean, it's an it's a integral part of the, the president's uh, uh, management agenda. Are there any other trends, external or internal, that are sort of helped you shape your vision for the office? Yeah. I, well, this is an interesting question. Help um, is uh, <laughs> or informed. Is, is, well, I yeah. Well, I think I think the thing that we're finding now is, and, and you know, the last time you and I spoke, we were we were consolidating the bureau of, right. the, of the, fund, the the bureau of the public debt and the financial management service. We did that. Uh, we were in the very beginning stages of that. We completed that in 2012. One of the first times that any government agencies have actually consolidated. Um, I think that what I'm really proud about in that is, is that the separate budgets for those two bureaus, we have operated at less than the combined budgets of those two bureaus all the way to 2022. So in other words, we have, we have really found significant savings. So we were, the two bureaus operating separately were more expensive than what we are today in appropriate budgets. So we, we felt as though we've been really good stewards in terms of figuring out ways to reduce costs, to be more efficient and the like. And effective, yeah. And I think we really, we really sort of had the ability. And that's, that's one of the things I would say is sometimes you think by having less, you're going to get less. Mm-hmm. This is one of those instances by less meant more um, because we became more efficient and we were looking at ways to do things more smartly. We're about ready to reach the end of that now. And part of the reason why we're reaching the end of that is because the amount of investments you need to make in cyber and IT has really grown significantly in the last two or three years. So um, I think one of the challenges that we face, and I think many of the government agencies are going to face, is that you are diverting resources, when, and there's really you really have to. Um, you know, you, it's something that you have to make sure that you do the investment because you have to have secure operations. 
Um, and so one of the things that we're, the challenges that I think we're facing in the horizon is how do we make sure that we look at that as a capital investment mm-hmm. and not impact program? Um, so that you can make sure that you can continue to make the investments in the program that you need to make to and deliver on your on your on your program activity, but also then think about this as a really important capital investment. And I sort of chuckle when I say, well, you know, look, there are many states that are prepared to pay a lot of money for a football stadium. Um, there should not be any reason why we shouldn't be prepared to invest in the in the financial management infrastructure of the federal government, given how important it is, and 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 and, and at a much less cost than a football stadium. Absolutely, <laughs> Dave. What I'd like to do is is take your experiences, uh, and you alluded to it in our previous segment around. Um, the emergency responses that you were involved in. What I'm talking about is the recent pandemic, but also as you compare it to the Recovery Act of 2009. I'm wondering if you could walk us through maybe how they were similar or different. What are some of the key challenges that you had to face responding to the pandemic? And I'm not just talking about the size of the amount of outlays, but um, you, you, you know, any lessons learned that helped with the, from the Recovery Act that helped you with the pandemic response. Yeah, and let me talk about it on a couple of levels, which is the magnitude yeah. was significantly larger this time around than it was in 2008. I think, in fact, in the 2008, there was around $700 billion were spent and well over 2.6. And then uh, growing was on the 2020 response, and there was an additional piece put on the, on the back end of that. You know, there were three major buckets. There was agency funding, there was some tax relief that was done, and then there was some additional um, loans that were put out there on the PPP program. Um, and, you know, those went to things like the airline industry to make sure that the airline industry stayed stable. Um, there was small business lending that went out on the PPP. There was a large bucket that had to do with state and local government money that was sent to the to states and the local governments. There was money sent to individuals on the economic impact payments. There was money sent to healthcare providers. And then there was economic um, stability, stabilization, which was the Federal Reserve intervening to actually help and assist in making sure markets continue to function well. And our initial effort was really to get the money out. Um, I mean, that really was, as I framed it earlier, was there was just a dire need to make sure that you didn't have a collapse of the economy. And I think that there was, I think by all measures, that was, was tremendously successful. Phase two is where a little bit where we got in later was much more about program. And so one thing that Treasury did this time that I think was very useful and did it in 2008 as well was set up a separate office that was really dealing with recovery program and was was really trying to bring all that into into one area. And that office of recovery programs has now been established on a permanent basis. Um, The reason why it's been established on a permanent basis, I think there's a feeling that um, Treasury, for better or worse, um, always sort of ends up being at the front of administering um, these kinds of programs. And so one might argue, why was the Department of Treasury doing airline work? Why was it doing um, you know the variety of things that we were doing. I think, and part of it is, is because I think that there's a sense that we can stand things up quickly, and that we can. And I think that you know we have now built a stronger infrastructure. That means that if if there's a next time, um, we do have a, a standing infrastructure rather than having to stand something up and stand it down. Um, now we will scale down, and which is what we did in 2008. We will scale down as as these programs start to 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 come to run off a bit. But having that infrastructure in place so that you can be responsive, I think, is 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 something that we've learned from the 2008 and learned from the 2020 experience that you know that you need to you need to do that. You know, I, I mentioned it was wonderful that we were able to bring people in quickly and to respond quickly on different things. At the same time, you have to administer the programs. Yeah. You have to make sure there's things like not improper payments, that the funds used appropriately, is you doing your right accounting, all those kinds of things are really important. Dave, as a follow-up, though the federal financial management community was not directly on the front lines 
of the pandemic response, how has the foundation of accounting standards, internal controls, and reporting that has been set over the last 30 years enabled and facilitated the rapid response to the pandemic? You know, someone who said that the you know the greatest asset we have is double entry book uh, keeping <laughs> accounting, which is there's some level of truth to that because it does allow you to have things like capital markets because you then have people who can look at your books and say yes, your books do reflect um, you know the truth and that they that you have the ability to actually point to something. I think it's been really critical, and I think that you know the the CFO Act uh, that when it was passed um, over 25 years ago you know, really did set that foundation in place of saying to the CFO community, you need to have audited statements. And I mentioned the financial report, which is really a compilation of those audited statements across the government. Um, and while I think that one might not always read financial reports, they, the, the work that goes into them and, and the internal controls that it reflects and the stewardship that's, that it reflects is really important. So having that sort of infrastructure in place and the uh, financial management community wasn't necessarily at the front lines of administering uh, relief, but they re- really were at the back end of making sure that the controls are in place and that the organizations could administer the money appropriately and account for the money appropriately. And that is, I think, you know, the backbone. That's why um, sometimes people will say, well, is that is that back office work? And I said, no, it's mission support work because it's really about, you know, making sure. In fact, I, I would argue that if you any organization that you look at, the strongest organizations have the strongest mission support because they have that capability to build um, and they have that capability to sustain good operations um, through that mission support function, whether it be acquisitions, uh, whether it be uh, HR, whether it be uh, the budget and finance. All those things are, are um, you know, th- those those, quote, back office functions are the things that really are the core of, of most organizations that allow the organization to do the wonderful things that they do. Across the federal government, the pandemic required agencies to become more adaptive, nimble, agile to effectively respond to the crisis. I was wondering if you could tell us, how did you use agile principles to respond to this crisis? Yeah, no, absolutely. And and uh, we, we had to apply them. Um, so I'll step back a second about my uh, with the Data Act. Um, it was the first government-wide Agile project that had had, had been uh, done. And um, I compare the work of a very small team of people who put this the Data Act broker together. And the Data Act broker was really the opportunity for agencies to submit, to make their submissions uh, in one place and then making taking that information be able to post it. It had to be reconciled. You had to have cross-checks and the like around it. Um, that, as an Agile effort, which was done and open source, Git, GitHub was used in order to sort of say, hey, look, here's what the code looks like. You know, take, agencies come in and look at it and play with it. That effort was done in, in, in less than nine months. We did a similar effort about five years previous to that, in which this took us four years. Um, and when we went to implementation on the previous effort, it wasn't, it wasn't smooth because we hadn't engaged the end users enough. When you use Agile principles and as we use them in the Data Act, when we went to implementation, there were virtually no hiccups along the way because everyone had been involved along the way and had sort of seen um, what was happening and therefore it went remarkably smoothly. So then fast forwarding and looking at the, the 2020 experience, absolutely you had to think through um, how to use those same kinds of Agile principles of small Agile teams prepared to, to, to take risks, to try to do things differently, to try innovation cutting down silos within the organization, all those things were, were very much apparent. I find that it's a challenge, as I mentioned earlier, to do that in the normal operations. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, the, the reason for that is, is that um, you got to get 80 million payments out a month. Um, and, and you can't 
can't, that can't go wrong. So when we think about innovation now, we think about it in a, in a slightly different way. We, we don't think about um, in our, our core operations of saying, hey, we're going to do something wild this week. Um, we take a look at how we can take a look at it in small scale and then take a look and things like um, bots and, and the like. Um, how do you do that at small scale to make sure it works and then you expand it to larger scale? and say, hey, now we can actually make to take this innovation to scale. And we've got a lot of areas where we're working on that kind of thing of saying, okay, let's see how it works and let's see if we can apply it in other parts of the organization. That's wonderful. You know, I want to switch gears a bit, Dave, to the um, Treasury being designated as the Quality Services Management Office for modernizing uh, federal management shared services, really. Can you tell us more about the Quizmo concept? What are some of the objectives of the office? And perhaps you can lay out sort of the benefits and challenges of realizing yeah. its objectives. Well, you know, there again, I, I would argue that our, our agile principles were really much at work as we took a small group of people and said, hey, look, how can we make a big difference? And and, and just for the for listeners is that um, th- this whole effort is about um, one of the challenges that have, have really um, been a problem throughout government is the ability to implement core financial systems to ERPs oftentimes referred to. There have been any number of those that, those efforts that have not gone well because they're difficult and they're complex and they deal with data, which has to be – you have to have data uh, transfer and the like. And, and oftentimes in that process, you under, you realize that maybe your underlying processes weren't as good as you thought they were. It's sometimes quite revealing as an experience. The QSMO effort was really an, an attempt to say, look, let's make sure we can develop a marketplace and that we have a a core group of people who can who have experience in sort of what it means to implement a, um, an ERP, a financial management system, and have the other agencies benefit from that experience of both providing services that are of a high quality, but also then have the ability to draw on the expertise of others who have done it previously to make sure that you don't make you know, a new, the same mistake over again. I always kind of joke and say, you know, look, every time I do a home improvement project, <laughs> I am going back to the home improvement store four or five times because I never get it right the first time. Now, the, the by the third or fourth time I do it, I'm only going to the store once because I know exactly what I need and I, I have the expertise to do it. Many times in government, we are in the former category, which is everyone thinks we're going to do this differently on our own and are not learning from the mistakes that are being that have, that have occurred. So the QSMO effort is really about trying to make sure that we we have good offerings that meet the, kind of the, the standards um, that we think are important for, for reporting and for financial management, but also then being able to draw on expertise, whether it be um, service contractor expertise or expertise that we have in the office at the Bureau of the Fiscal Service that can help people. So we've been in the process right now of trying to stand up the marketplace, and we're hopeful that that's going to be um, successful, and we've made some really good progress on that in the the coming quarters. But what we did initially was we kind of went back to those agile principles. Let's go out and talk to the customers about what their needs are. Let's see if we can bring together products, working with vendors and working with the industry, to make those products actually meet and work in in the federal space. The people that we have on the staff, it's only a staff of about 10 people, are people who have experience in implementing other systems and other agencies. And so we're at the same time, we're working closely with agencies like Commerce and DHS in looking and, and Veterans Affairs of looking at what they're learning as they're presently going through the implementation process. So one, talking to others who are currently doing it, having people on staff who have done it um, actually can be very helpful in terms of, I think, will have a disproportionate impact on delivery of of, um, of a really important function and, and really a 
advancing that objective of improving federal financial management. How is Treasury's Office of Fiscal Service using innovative approaches to meet its critical mission? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dave Liebrich, Fiscal Assistant Secretary at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. So, Dave, I want to switch gears a bit and talk about uh, the disbursement of payments. What What are you guys doing to innovate and enhance? Are there any key initiatives in this area? And can you tell us what their progress is to date? So, um, we are now close to 90 90- Eight and a half percent of all Social Security benefit payments are now made electronically, which is really wonderful. Yeah, so we're and, and we're driving up government overall uh, around ninety six percent. So we really keep pushing on making that forward. Some of the things that we've done, and now we we have a, an innovative program um, called the Direct Express program, which is around four million users, and these are largely people who don't have bank accounts, mm-hmm. and so we've given them a, a, a debit card in which we load the benefits on the card every month. And that helps them, if they're not banked, that they can actually use the card either at ATM machines or over the counter. And that's been a a really good innovation um, to try to hit a segment of the population. I mentioned about check conversion that we we were trying to do. I mentioned that we're also looking at, um, in terms of of fraud prevention and detection, uh, one of the things that we did during uh, the innovations that we used during the EIPs was we did bank account validation, verification. And really what that means is, is that before we sent the payment, we wanted to make sure that it actually was a legitimate bank account, that it was in your name and it was actually to you. And this has been something that's carried over now um, into our improper payment area. So sort of saying, how do we reduce the number of improper payments out there? And we do we validate people. So um, in the payments area, again, really continue to push. We use debit cards um, in the EIPs, which was the first time we had done that, um, and uh, stood that program up in about a six-week period, which is really almost unprecedented, to make sure we could speed payment up. If we couldn't get have enough check uh, capacity, we could actually then use uh, debit cards, which we did effectively. There's obviously... Uh, in the broader, longer-term world, there's uh, there's innovation that's going on out now, out there about um, FedNow, which is real-time payments. That's uh, something the Federal Reserve is working on a system, and so we're actively working with the Federal Reserve when that process goes into place. The applicability we'll have for the federal government. The ACH system, which is the normal rails, has something called same-day ACH. And so we're working with sort of the ability to make same-day payments through the same-day ACH process and agencies. So, for example, let's say that the um, 
you have a large social security file, as an example, uh, and the file isn't complete, and you find out later that you had to add some people who uh, were entitled to a first-of-the-month payment. You now can come back in and say, it's the first of the month, I can make a same-day payment. So that they don't have to wait as you know, so that they can actually meet that. So we're we're working on on those things as an innovation in the payments area. I would also say in the payments area, while it's not so much about payments, it's about reducing improper payments. We have a lot of work going on in that area. And I mentioned the account validation service that we're doing. Um, we're doing a little bit on on machine learning with respect to doing fraud detection, and we have some opportunities that we can do a little bit more there. Um, we have um, the Do Not Pay database, which is about agencies can check against the database before they make a payment. And we're working with states who administer state, uh, federally funded state-administered programs so that they can access the database and come in and say, is that someone I should make a payment to? So there's um, a lot of work going on in the area. I think a lot of exciting work going on in the area. And when you asked me about kind of, you know, what are some of the opportunities for us in the coming years, I would say, you know, building out that payment integrity function Mm -hmm. is an area where I think that we have a lot of opportunity to do more because we're making 90% of the payments for the government. Right, and so we we are we are a central repository for data, and we we're a central po- um, place where payments are actually running through. So we can really, I think, make a big difference in that area of of, of helping agencies ensure that they don't make improper payments, um, and that, you know the payment gets to the right person for the right amount on the right and, and the right at the right time. Now, longer term, um, w- which I think is probably not going to occur in my career, my professional career, there are discussions about things out there about central bank digital currency oh, and, yes. and, and the like. I don't think those are things, those are things which are, are important ideas to be considering. Um, I don't think as it relates to my day-to-day operations <laughs> that those are, that's going to be implemented anytime soon. You know, just picking up on improper payments, how do you do you have a role in working with agencies to to address them uh, from a government wide perspective? And how is it going? Yeah, so improper payments, you know, there's the, the how and why an improper payment takes place is oftentimes usually related to eligibility. Sure. So, were you eligible? Was, was was the recipient eligible for an unemployment benefit? Did they meet the income? definition? Did they exceed the income definition of of eligibility and like? So a lot of what has to happen with respect to reducing improper payments has to happen at the agency level and the where they're interacting with the, the individual. And that's where some of the challenges are. You know, do do they have, uh, you know, we, we, there are limitations about how much income data you can get from various sources. So, you know, it's 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 not like um, that information is freely available um, out there. And so there's there are challenges with that. Um, what we do at Fiscal is that we have a number of databases in which um, agencies can send their payments through and match against to find out whether someone's on a do not pay list, um, a barred list, whether the death master file, whether someone has passed away, um, ensuring, making sure you're not paying uh, someone who's deceased. Although I would mention there are certain circumstances where making a payment to a deceased person is appropriate, mm-hmm. um, the way the rules are, are written for either a period of time or to a, an estate or the like. Um, but so you have to make sure that you're, you're careful about not stopping payments that should have otherwise gone. And so it's really understanding the rules around payments. And so um, we worked with FEMA um, as well in terms of emergency payments and, and, and helping make sure that we're checking before payments go out. One of the provisions of the, of the uh, relief efforts was uh, helping to pay for funeral expenses. Um, and so you had to make sure that you were validating or, or, or having bases, uh, databases you could check 
uh, to make sure that fraud wasn't being done in those instances. So our role is sort of as a central repository. There are a number of agencies like CMS who, because of the scale at which they do things, have developed their own internal kind of processes and and are, are quite sophisticated. But for the majority of agencies out there, we can play an important centralized role in assisting them and ensuring that they're not making payments to people they shouldn't be making payments to. We go from disbursements, payments, improper payments to collection. What are you doing in the area of collections to kind of continuously improve the way and and, and the scope and the grasp of collections? Yes. So I I went to a national park uh, the other day and I noticed that they didn't want want to take cash. And I thought, well, that's actually kind of a good thing because handling cash isn't altogether uh, the, the right thing. But we are looking at making sure we're working with the agencies about different ways you can pay. So digital payment, digital wallet, you know, can we make sure that if you don't want to pay with a credit card and we don't want to take your cash, do you have other means? And and you can see I was there's a lot of activity going around around the world about how do you move toward more electronic collections and payments. And so we're very much trying to stay on top of that, of ensuring that there's modern mechanisms for people to make payments, which in our world then is collections. Um, So the other areas, which is um, we're trying to make sure we have something called a pay.gov, which we work with agencies that can actually digitize their forms. So one way is to, you know, rather than having to fill a form out and then attach a check to it, can you actually digitize that form and make payment simultaneously, you know, right online like you can in, in most in most of your uh, private sector experiences. Uh, and so work being done in that area. Also, we're working with agencies on something called centralized receivables, which is many agencies can't get to scale on developing a receivables department because they're too small or they don't have a lot of work. So we offer a, a shared service that we will offer to agencies, say, if you'd like us to work on the, on, on your receivables, we will help you with your receivables so that they don't become delinquent debts down the road. And so that's a notion there is if you have better um, receivable processes up front, reminders and mailings and those kinds of things, it does not become delinquent debt in the back end. And so looking kind of at that life cycle of, of improvements. So those are, those are some of the major things in the collections area. Dave, I was wondering, what are you doing? You mentioned bots, and I know your office is about policy development guidance. So how do you see the role of emerging technologies that as they mature, I'm thinking higher order AI or beyond the bot, maybe intelligent automation, how do you see that helping treasury per se, but in general, maybe your office deliver its mission? Yeah. I think that probably AI in my world is, 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 a, is, a, is a number of years out, okay. which is the, but, but, but if, you, if you go around to a, a, a to sort of subset of that in terms of machine learning, um, I think that there are opportunities for us to have more machine learning, particularly in looking at fraud um, activity. And we are, we are doing some things in that area, which is great. I think as it relates to things like bots, um, there again, we really thought about how do you find processes or, or things which are routine um, and repetitive and making sure that if you can do that in an automated fashion. So we've had a number of successes in our shared services area. Um, we provide shared services to a number of, of, of agencies and um, have done things like, say, are there things that are, that are requiring a lot of manual intervention um, and, but it could be automated in a way that the person doing that function spending less time doing the manual intervention and more time actually doing the other kinds of high-value work. And we've had some successes in that area, particularly in the shared services area, in the accounting area, and the human resources area um, that, have been, that have been very encouraging. And the interesting part about the bots, at least one of the bots, was actually developed by a bureau employee. 
So it wasn't, it didn't necessarily need to go out and say, hey, you know, it was basically saying, hey, I look, I'm looking at how I'm pulling data and collecting data and how I'm transferring it. Is there a better way to do this, an easier way to do it on an automated fashion, either pull the data, collect it, and then transfer it to another spreadsheet? Um, and so it wasn't really high-level coding that, re, that was needed to do that, um, but was really effective in terms of improving this employee's sort of day-to-day experience significantly. Um, and, you know, I think every part of our organization that's dug into this has said, I'm doing lots of repetitive work that I don't really need to be doing this manually. For us, it's always a question of, well, what's your, what's your capability to take that and then implement yeah. um, and then get, getting to scale? You know, you mentioned earlier, given the background of, of your office and the folks that are there, they tend to have a risk appetite that's less than, you know, high. And I'm wondering, you, given the stories you've told us and the, and the progress you've made, do you have any advice? And, and where I'm going with this is how you balance cultivating a culture of innovation and expanding the risk appetite yeah. for leaders? So two things. One is we we sat down and had uh, asked ourselves, what do we, where are we comfortable with risk? And so I think from our perspective, we have a statement that sort of says, hey, this is how you how we think about risk within the organization, about where we're prepared to take risks, and then what we're prepared to do when we want to take a risk. Now, in some cases, you have to take a risk because you don't have any choice. You you're, you're forced to do it. But at the other hand, you, and as I said previously, you're not going to take uh, a really uh, high value asset or core function and make major changes to it on the fly. You're going to be doing that in a more in a way. So things like on the payment side, for example, on the collection side, we kind of put ourselves, or put a toe in the water and see how does it go. And then, and then once you get experience with it, then you can go to scale more. Same thing with on the bots. Yeah. But in the end, what you have to have in an organization is you have to have a learning environment. Mm-hmm. You, you, so you really need to encourage that with the employees. Understand what's going on in the world around you. I mean, I mentioned, um, you know, I, I observed that in, uh, in China, for example, the restaurant ticket now is coming through a, a QPR, which is, you know, that you, you actually can, you take a picture, you can take a picture of when it comes to you, the, the barcode that comes to you or the code that comes to you, uh, and then it automatically matches against payment on your phone. And it, it cuts out the credit card, for example, in, in that particular case, it, and it links directly to your bank account. Now, the vendor likes this a lot because it's real-time payment, and the user finds it much easier. Well, I'm not so sure we're going to be doing it anytime soon in fiscal, but it's really important to understand that those trends are out there um, and that, that's, you know, that, that in, in the payment and collections area, there are things like that happening. And so I was in a restaurant the other day, and I saw one, and I got my bill, and I said, oh, I'm, I'm going to take a picture of it and see what happens. And it actually said, hey, okay, now you want to make payment. What's your payment mechanism you want to use? you want to use a credit card? Do you want to make it to your bank account? So you're seeing that kind of innovation that's occurring in slowly uh, in different areas, but you've got to be aware of it. I mean, you have to sort of be paying attention to it. And that's why I always just, you know, talk to our employees about, you know, remember when you had a really good customer experience, when you went to an app, an app and, and that app was good. Why was it good? Um, and, and shouldn't we be doing that in government? Shouldn't we be having that same kind of experience within the government space as, as you do in your private space? But pay attention to those things and then think about how you bring them back into the workplace. I think part of it is, um, you know, sometimes in an organization, change isn't altogether the worst thing in the world in large measure because if you've been doing something the same way for a long time, you sometimes no longer look at it differently. And so it can be interesting things like rotations within an organization can be very valuable of, of bringing someone from either outside the organization or someone from a different part of the organization and having them rotate into a new area so they can bring that. Now, 
you know, do people feel uncomfortable sometimes in a new in a new position? Yeah, they do. And sometimes that's not bad. Mm-hmm. Um, feeling a little bit uncomfortable is sometimes a good thing because it means that you may work smarter, mm-hmm. you might work harder, and you're definitely going to be a learner. I mean, you're definitely going to say, hey, look, I've got to learn this function. I've got to understand it better. And in that process, you may bring innovation. You may bring some different skill or different thinking to that process and would not have otherwise been there. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful advice. Before we move on, to, I want to talk about US, uh, usaspending.gov. Any new enhancements there? How are you working in terms of you know, innovating the use of federal spending data? Yeah, I think the, the, the best, you know, so the data lab has been something that's been, been an offshoot of USA spending. We continue to do the sort of the, the standard work of making sure we're doing the, the regular collections from the agencies, doing the regular pre- presentations, making sure that the data is good on, on the site and the like. But I think there's also things like your guide to America's finances, which I think is a wonderful example of innovation of looking at taking that data that um, uh, may be very useful for certain users with, with respect to uh, on the USA spending, one of the things it does is says, what's your un- un- unappropriated, what's your un- un- obligated balance? So, you know, you were you were given this amount of money and what have you used year to date? And it's very useful for people to go in and take a look at that and understand what may be left. At the same time, average user may not necessarily think that's the most important thing. What they might want to be, uh, or, or an average citizen, might be more interested in what did the government spend last year? You know, what did the government collect last year? And what was the deficit last year? And what's the total debt? So trying to do things like um, making that information both visually usable on the USA spending and, and, and more granular um, all the way down to the award level. And then, but at the same time, having information available at a higher level that may be more more appropriate for the average user. So, you know, Dave, what other key accomplishments would you like to highlight that maybe we didn't t- talk about? And and what does the future hold for the Office of Fiscal Service at Treasury? Yeah. You know, we had a CFO council meeting uh, the other day, a strategic session. And I think that, uh, you know, we were kind of looking across the landscape and asking what the community is facing right now. And I think that, you know, in large measure, the, the community continues to take a look at um, human capital. You know, how do we make sure that we, we retain and attract the right people into our community so that they can sort of lead going forward in the future? Um, I think people were very concerned about budget. You know, the things like continuing resolutions mean that um, if, if the pay raise goes in next year, agencies will be facing more of a budget pinch. Everyone's very much worried about the spend on, on IT and cyber, uh, the impact it may have there. Um, looking at what mandates may be coming down the road. Um, and, and fortunately, there have not been a lot of new mandates recently, so that's a good thing. And, and I think that, um, you know, everyone sort of continues to have the, the notion of, of data. You know, how do I take that data and, and make it more useful to my users? And I always, you know, when I talk into the CFO community, I said, well, you know, think real hard about what your boss wants from you. You know, are, are you delivering that? We all have an obligation in the community to do the, the blocking and tackling, but you also need to be thinking about what do the people above you want from you and what kind of information and, and can you present it in the most useful way. I think as we're going forward in the coming year, there's going to be more demand for that simply because um, we're going to probably see squeezes on the budget that we haven't seen in a while. Um, you know, we've had this this era of lots of money flowing and, and having, I think we're, we're likely to see a, a situation where that may not be as, as available. And so agencies really need to be thinking about how they're going to prepare for that um, going forward. So if, if, we, if I could ask you, what are, say, some of the three key takeaways you'd want our listeners to know about your office? I think um, that, you know, I would hope that people would say this is an example of government working well um, and working and achieving the objectives that it's meant to achieve. 
Um, and it's done that by sort of thinking hard about the future, thinking about hard about what the end user, the citizens want and what users of our services want. Um, and then same, you know, thinking that we, we have we have shown that we can be good stewards and, and deliver at a at a at a, at a high level. And, and be responsive. Um, and so I, I, I hope, you know, that's what I would hope people would say, well, yeah, you know, they're, 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 they're displaying good leadership there. Um, they are, they're, they're doing their core operations really well and they're leading well. Mm-hmm. That's great. So Dave, one last question. What advice would you give someone who is thinking about a career in public service? A couple things um, that, that I would say is, um, you know, when, when someone joins an organization, they, they join it because of mission, because of purpose. And, uh, the thing about the federal government is there are any number of opportunities to do meaningful work that is purpose and mission driven. And so, you know, I would say in looking at the federal government, look for something that's meaningful, purposeful. I think at the same time, being flexible enough and, and being open to new opportunities, because I know when I look at my career and, and any number of different things that I've done, it's always because a new opportunity arose that was challenging and was going to be, have the ability to, I think, use my skills well, but also then to be learning in that process. And there's a kind of interesting school of thought about um, strength finders is something that's out there and says, hey, look, understand what you do well. Mm-hmm. Um, understand what your kind of core characteristics are. And no matter what you do, um, you're going to bring those core strengths to that job or that responsibility. And uh, it doesn't mean that you should ignore your weaknesses, but it means that understand that this is what you're going to likely do when you go to a job. So if you really like to work with numbers, then think about jobs that, you know, you like to work with numbers. If you really like to work with people, think about jobs that you're going to work with people. You're going to take those skills, whether you're collecting trash or whether you're doing something at a very high level, you are going to be using that that basic skill set. Now, with respect to weaknesses, what I would say is understand what those are because they can they can come back and bite you and make sure you manage those weaknesses appropriately. But I think that, you know, I, I would just come back as the federal government has just so many opportunities um, and can be tremendously rewarding uh, and, and, and satisfying. We need to bring more people with that sort of energy and, and that new set of skills into the federal government that, um, you know, roughly 7 percent of the workforce is under the age of 30. Uh, it's a very small percentage. And we need to bring people who are, are younger into the, into the workplace who have those kinds of new skills that we're going to need. Well, Dave, it was uh... It was tremendous having you back in. I'm glad you came in for the show. I want to thank you for your time today, but more importantly, Dave, I want to thank you for your continued service to the country. Thank you. Really appreciate having a chance to see you again. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dave Liebrich, Fiscal Assistant Secretary at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery, by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.
WFED Washington, WTOPFM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLPFM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.